Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you, worshiping with you. Um, this will be the third time up here for me and the third week. And uh, last week, Kelly said, oh, yeah, you did a good job, but uh, one minor one minor thing. I'm like, oh, no, uh, you should introduce yourself. So let me make sure I don't forget to do that this time. My name is Adri, that is A-D-R-I, and uh, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And um, I work specifically with international students, and we want to see the nations worship God together. That is our image. That's what we want to see happen here in Pullman and around the world. And the first song that we sang, I hadn't heard it for a long, long time. Uh, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, or yes, 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 Lord. And um, it took me back to uh, an opportunity that Kelly and I had 13 years ago to go to a wedding in Bulgaria. And that was a song they sang, not in English. They sang it in Bulgarian, Da, 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 Gospodin. And um, it just reminded me that today, yes, we're here with a group worshiping God in Pullman. But there are people in uh, Hovstovo, Bulgaria, worshiping the Lord too, uh, all around the world. And they're saying, yes, Lord. They're saying, you are worthy. And um, that is just such a beautiful image. So uh, we're going to finish the series that I've been working on, which uh, I don't know if it's been anywhere uh, printed, but it's letters from prison, because Paul has been writing in this, in this first imprisonment, he's been writing four letters. We've been going through Ephesians for the first two weeks, and then we shift now to Philippians. But Paul's still in the same prison, uh, probably in Rome in 62 AD. And um, yeah, this is a lot of the time when I get asked to speak, I'm like, okay, what, what does the church need? And I kind of look and possibly look at a text that I, I kind of like to talk about. And not so this time. Uh, there were three texts that InterVarsity asked me this, this spring to, uh, to do Bible studies on. And it just gave me this text. And I said, well, I'm just going to take those to the church and see what they say. That can sometimes be dangerous because there's stuff in the Bible that sometimes is not stuff we want to hear. Uh, but there's a lot of beautiful things in there. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Philippians 4, 4 through 20, and just see what Paul has to say. And I believe that God is going to speak uh, through this living word of him. So again, Paul is writing this. Last time he wrote to the Ephesian church, he actually wrote to a group of churches. At this time he writes to a very specific church. He writes to the Philippians, and he knows the Philippians well. Uh, we can see that from his letter too. He names people by name. Even in this part, what we're reading, he, names, he says the name Epaphroditus. He knows these people. And if you read Acts, which is the book after the first four Gospels, so Jesus has gone up to heaven, and then it's the story of the early church, um, we see that Paul knows the Philippian church well as well. He is in Asia Minor when ministry there doesn't seem to be happening anymore. The Spirit isn't like leading, like is, is stop, stopping him from going certain places. And then he has a vision of a man of Macedonia. And so he sets out to go to Macedonia, and I think it's funny, he has a vision of a man of Macedonia, and who does he meet? Lydia a woman in Philippi, in the area of Macedonia, and she becomes the first believer in what is now called modern-day Europe. And that's just the start of it, because the story gets pretty crazy soon. Paul is walking through the town of Philippi, and there's a slave girl following him that has the spirit of divination. She can foretell the future. And um, she walks behind them and keeps shouting things like, these are men of God, you need to listen to them. 
And uh, it says then that Paul gets annoyed at her, at her after a couple of days, turns around and says to, to the spirit, get out of her. And the spirit leaves her. She's now free. But her owners aren't very happy about this because she lost her ability to foretell the future. And consequently, Paul and his friend Silas are taken to prison. And that's not where the story ends either because when they're in prison, there's an earthquake at night. They can escape. The jailer is about to commit suicide because he knows there's a punishment if his uh, prisoners escape. And uh, Paul is like, no, no, I'm still here. The jailer is amazed, takes him to his family, and his whole family gets baptized. So an amazing beginning. You can see that Paul was here planting. He put lots of effort into it. He cares for the Philippian church. And from this letter, we can see that they care for him too because they have been supporting his ministry for a while. So let me read again, Philippians 4, 4.20. It will not be on the screen, so if you can, find it in your Bibles or um, on your phone uh, to read along. Philippians 4, 4-20. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you have no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in a matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, Lord, again, thank you. Thank you for Paul and his writings and that you are still speaking through his writings to us today. Lord, we pray that you open up our hearts to receive whatever you have to say. In your name we pray. Amen. So, I, when I looked through it, I found three, three themes that I want to talk about today. The first one is about fear, or as he says, do not be anxious. Then he talks about needs. There are certain needs that Paul has, and he, and he, he talks about those. And then he talks about the support that the Philippian church has given. So those are the three things that I'm going to talk about, and I, I think we'll find out that there is something connecting all of those three themes together. 
So he starts with this um, uh, phrase, do not be anxious. And I, I think you would agree that we all have moments of anxiety. Um, I have a cold 4 a.m. in the morning, my freak out moment. Sometimes when there's stuff boiling inside of me that I don't know what to do with, um, I don't really deal with it during the day because there's enough stuff going on, but then at 4 a.m. I wake up and I'm worrying about this stuff. And sometimes they're real fear, sometimes they're not really all that important. Uh, but I think many people will um, will find have similar issues with uh, having fear. If you Google fear just on um, on the internet, you just look for fear, there's lots of people that make lists of what people are fearful of. And some of those things are very real, some of those things are further away from us. Um, but for example, the fear of losing a family member. For some people that's fairly real, for some of us that right now is something that is theoretical. Nonetheless, we can get anxious about it. Being alone, a big, big thing in our society today. Lots of people are alone and are afraid of being alone. Things like terrorism, a lot of people are afraid of that, or our financial future. Like, am I going to have a job next month? Am I going to be able to pay for that car repair? And a lot of things that we fear about, we don't have a whole lot of control about. Like one of the things that is very high currently on the list is terrorism. And as an individual, you have very little impact on solving that. On the other hand, very few people are afraid of driving a car while it's way more deadly. Um, being in control, other thing is that um, I know a lot of people who don't really like flying. And I think part of that, for some, not for all, is they much rather have a steering wheel and be able to guide the car wherever it is going than to just trust this pilot that you can't even see because there's a door and hope he does his job well. Now, I can tell you, you really don't want me to be in control of the plane. But we fear those kind of things. And um, we linger on those things as well. And our um, and news media know that. They have this saying that is, if it bleeds, it leads. They know that when we get anxious about something, our tendency is to keep checking it. What is happening? What is happening with this terror attack? And we, we keep lingering on it so long that we become more anxious. And it, it can sometimes stifle our thinking and our actions. Um, as a college student, as all college students know, you have to write lots of papers. And sometimes I planned in advance and I took all the time that I needed and I did a great job. Sometimes I started last minute, found out it was a way harder topic than I thought, had only a few more hours to complete it. And technically, I probably should still be able to pull off a decent thing. But what happened is I started lingering on the fear. I'm not going to be able to. To, to get this done on time. I'm not going to have a good grade, and that's going to have all these consequences. And consequently, it got harder and harder for me to write that paper. So failure can even, or sorry, uh, um, fear can even uh, stifle our actions. So Paul says, do not be anxious. Well, that's a nice solution, right? That's harder, it's easier said than done. But luckily, he says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request God. <coughs> Sorry. He shifts the focus away from the fear and towards God. If you look at Matthew 14, we see Jesus, who has just fed 5,000 people, say to his disciples, you go to the other side of the lake, I'll, I'll, go, I'll, I'll come, you go ahead of me. And um, he dismisses the crowd, he goes up to pray, the disciples go onto the lake, and while Jesus is praying, there's this storm, and they just can't make, they can't get any further. 
And so Jesus, when he's done praying, he goes down the hill and he goes to the water side and he starts doing what Jesus does. Walk on the water, right? <clears throat> he walks towards the boat and the first thing that the disciples, when they look out of the boat, do, they see somebody walking on the water, they think, it's a ghost! Which is interesting because the Jewish faith or religion doesn't show uh, any belief in ghosts. So it's funny that that's the first thing they jump to, even though they shouldn't be believing that they could even see a ghost. And then Jesus says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter, as always being the first, says, oh, if it is you, Lord, just tell me to get out of the boat and I'll come to you. And Jesus simply says, come. And Peter steps on the water, and I imagine he's looking at Jesus, and then the text says, and then he looked around and he saw the wind. He saw the storm. He saw the waves. And he started thinking. And Jesus pulls him out, and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And they got back in the boat, and all the disciples start worshiping Jesus. You are truly the Son of God. But the question lingers, why did Peter doubt? And I think it isn't this simple, I am looking at Jesus, it is fine, and now I'm looking at what gives me anxiety, which is the storm. It's real, right? The storm, high waves, standing on the water, this has the potential of killing Peter. But he takes his eyes away from Jesus, and consequently, things start going wrong. And so it really depends on where our perspective is. Is it on God? Or is it on whatever gives us fear? So I am from the Netherlands, and about 10 years ago, we were in the process of applying for a visa for me to go to the United States and study. And there was lots of paperwork involved in that, uh, lots of meetings, going to the American consulate in Amsterdam, um, having to do medical checkups and such. And I just I had this amazing amount of anxiety. If I do anything wrong, if I, if I tick the wrong box on that text, or if I give the wrong answer, they might Void the whole thing, and you have to start the process over again. What I might say, no, you're just never going to be allowed to go. And so I had lots of anxiety there. And I don't remember exactly when it happened, but there was this moment I realized I was looking at my fear and my, and my anxiety, and I wasn't looking at God. And so I turned, and I realized that when I looked at God, the outcome of this process didn't really matter that much. It was me focusing on God, and getting my strength from there. And whatever God wanted to do, maybe he would give me the visa, and it would be right, it would be good, and maybe he wouldn't. Shifting my focus took complete care of that fear. So again, Paul changes our perspective. He says, bring all these requests to God. If there's things that you fear, bring those as requests to God. He uses another word as well, and that's the word thanksgiving. God deserves our thanks, right? But it does even more. When we do thanksgiving, we look back on what God has done. And as we look back, we see that God has done certain things in our lives, and we start to trust Him more. Back again, at the same time in the Netherlands, uh, we were part of an international group uh, that had a Bible study, but at the end we had a time to pray and to give thanks. And somebody had a little booklet, and they wrote down every day, every week, uh, what the thank you points were and then what the prayer points were. So we looked at, well, there were some prayer points last week. Now, did God answer that in any way? And a lot of the time, things were being answered. And so we did that week to week, and it was great. 
then we left, and as you know, I'm here right now, so the visa process obviously worked out. And a year later, we were down in Los Angeles, and I realized that, that booklet, I, I remember that booklet. And so I asked the leader of the group, can you send me a copy of that booklet? And she, she made some copies, sent it by email, and I started reading through the prayers that Kelly and I had had in that time, which there was just a lot of things to be anxious about, right? The visa, applying for school, work, is there going to be enough money, all those kind of things. And I looked through it, and I saw that God had answered each and every prayer that we had had. You know what that did to our faith? It strengthened it. Like, wow, God is really taking care of us. And so again, shifting our perspective from our anxiety to God, that's what Paul's challenging us to do. So let's move to the, the second thing that I, I see Paul spending quite a bit of time on, and that's the word need. He ends the text by saying, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul always has to say things a little longer, right? He doesn't just say, God will meet all your needs, but then he says, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is this God that owns everything, that's created everything, that has all authority and power, and he will meet all your needs. But if you take that little sentence out of context, you could easily think that it meant, means that God is going to take care of all your material needs, and you're going to have a nice house, a nice car, good health. And um, there's many churches around the country and even around the world that believe in that prosperity gospel. And if you look at that um, on face value, yeah, maybe you could come to that conclusion. But you're, then you're really denying some of the background here, because who is writing this, and where is he at, right? This is Paul being in prison. We know from the Bible that he has been stoned. People had thrown rocks at him, tried to roll boulders over him. He somehow survived. His friends took him out. He was persecuted. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He, he went hungry. He is now in a place where he could die any day. And then he says, God will meet all your needs. So either, God, either Paul is a little delusional, or he's not saying what we think he's saying. Now, maybe Paul says, like, my needs are taken care of, and he has a different frame of mind about needs. But when we read this letter, we see that he mentioned that he has had needs. He has, he has gotten hungry. He has been in one. So that's not a, a way to explain this away. Now, some of the complication here comes from translation. In Greek, there's three different words for need. And the first time he uses it, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. He's using the word hysteresis, which means poverty. So he's saying, I'm not saying this because I'm, in, I'm, I'm living in poverty. The second time, uh, he says, I know what it is to be in need. It's a, your, the word tapano, which means getting along with humble means. He says, I know what it is to get along with humble means. But the last two times, including God will meet all your needs, he uses the word kriya, which means necessity. This is necessary somehow. So he makes a distinction between the needs that are needs and then the needs that are necessary. In the third time that he uses it, he uses it in relation to his work in Thessalonica. The church has aided him, the Philippian church has aided him and given him, him his necessities in order to do the gospel work in Thessalonica. And this, Paul doesn't really tell us why one is a necessity and the other isn't. I only can guess. But I think maybe it is because 
if that need hadn't been filled, he hadn't been able to go to Thessalonica, those people wouldn't have heard of God. They hadn't, wouldn't have had the opportunity to give their lives to Jesus. There is this bigger perspective. It's not just about the here and the now. It is about others, and it is about eternity, and it is about a relationship with God in eternity. And Paul knows that. Now, again, Paul doesn't answer the question specifically why something is a need and the other thing is a necessity, but what he does do, he says, where we need to focus. He says, I can do all these things in the midst of all these, like like going hungry, uh, living in poverty, I can do all these things through him who gives me strength. So again, there is this perspective that changes from looking at our needs and what we, we think we need in the here and now to looking at God, the creator of everything, who has everything and who still fulfills our needs. Jesus, when he, after the Last Supper, right, he just did the, the, the breaking of the bread and drinking of the wine, just after that, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane with three of his disciples. And there's this moment where Jesus is struggling with what his need is in the here and now. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. May I not have to die in this terrible way. May I not be beaten. May I not be crucified. There is this real need to be saved and to live. But then he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, he focused his eyes on God. Jesus felt the need to live, but the need to do the Father's will was bigger. And because of that, we can be saved. It's the bigger picture. Paul earlier in Philippians says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by better far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul is aware of this big picture, but he sees both Jesus and Paul here see suffering and death are real, but they're only a part of the journey of following God. And in a society, specifically today, where we want to avoid suffering and death. We put it away. We don't want to even see other people that deal with that. Um, it's, it's, it's something we fear. And Paul says, when we are in need, I can still be strong because of God. So again, Paul changes our perspective. So let's go to the last one, the theme of support, because that's a big one here. Paul is challenging the Philippians to view giving differently. Now, in the time, first century um, Roman Empire, there was something called the patronage system. There would be a patron who would be normally a, a higher social class, higher social standing, had money, and then there would be a client who wanted to get something done. The patron would then give money to the client or help to the client, whatever the client needed, but didn't do that out of, like, um, well, there's a good word for that. Al al altruistic motive. Yes, sure. Why not? But go with that. Just get, no, that was something expected. Part of what was expected was that some honor was given. This is something public. People would know about it. And in some cases, a patron might help somebody who said, a client who said, I want to go into local politics, help this person to get into local politics. But then by the time that person had gotten to that place, the patron would expect the client do his or her bidding. So that's the system that Paul has to somehow um, say thank you in. And, then, and when you read this, he doesn't really say thank you. 
And I think the reason for that is, is he tries to undermine and say, I'm not saying thank you because then you believe that I'm doing something back for you. That's not what this is about. And so he starts talking about giving in very interesting wording. He says that the giving that they have done is a matter of giving and receiving. So somehow, even though the Philippians have given stuff to Paul, they have also received something. Well, well, what is that then, right? So he clarifies. He says, I don't desire the gift, but I desire that more (coughs) be credited to your account. Then that's really interesting because like, if they have an account and they're moving money from their account to Paul, you would expect a debit. They go back to their account and now there's a credit. Is that what he's saying? And then at the end, (coughs) he says, the gift that you send is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And I think that's where the answer lies. Sacrifice is this really holy interaction that the Jewish people have had ever since the beginning of Genesis with God. The moment that Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, yet get their sons, Cain and Abel, who are sacrificing to the Lord. And Abel's sacrifice is found to to be pleasing, to be acceptable to God. And Cain's isn't. And it's not completely clear why that is. The only thing that, that you can see is that Abel took time to find the best pieces of meat to put on the altar. While Cain just came and also did a sacrifice. We don't really know why, but one was pleasing to God and the other was not. After uh, Noah got out of the boat and there was finally uh, a dry ground again, the first thing he does, he sacrifices clean animals. And it says that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. So here we see God smelling this pleasing aroma and he makes a covenant with people. In Exodus, when the ark has been built, so the, the, the people of, of Israel have been going through the desert, away from Egypt, towards that promised land, and they built this ark uh, where, the, where God can live, and then Aaron and his sons get ordained as priests. God instructs them very specifically how to make all the sacrifices so that they will be pleasing to God. If you read Leviticus, you see full, lots and lots of instructions but how to do sacrifices, including sin offerings, and so that if you do them right, they're going to be pleasing to God. Sacrifice was a huge deal in Jewish society. It was the only way to become clean, to worship God. And now Paul is saying, this is not just a financial transaction. This is a holy act. This is a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. Have you ever thought about giving that way? Because to me, this is mind-blowing. It seems like it's a simple transaction from a bank account to a bank account, and God is seeing it as a pleasing aroma. Now, many of you know, I, I said earlier on, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and ministry on campus, which means that I need to do fundraising. Now, we don't like the word fundraising, so we call it ministry partnership development. Uh, that just sounds nicer, but uh, we still have to do it. We have to raise money for our ministry, so that we can do the work on uh, on campus. And um, in the first year, there was a woman down in LA. Um, we asked her to to give, and she started giving a really sizable gift every 
month. And so after a year, as I was going back to LA, I thought, I need to say thank you. I need to go over there. And so I set a time apart to meet up with her. And um, initially, when we started meeting, I said, thank you. And she was like, kind of dismissing it. And so I wanted to make sure she knew that I was thank thankful, right? So again, I said, thank you. And she got mad at me. Like, why are you thanking me? You're giving me the ability to, to be part of your ministry and part of your blessing. I should be saying thanks to you. And I think that is exactly what Paul is saying here, is that giving is this holy act. She understood that, that it is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul is a master at challenging our perspective. He challenges us when we are in fear to turn away from that fear and to turn to God. That when there are needs, and some of the needs, I mean going hungry, suffering, there's a real need. And sometimes God fulfills that, like, like, takes care of those needs in the way that we expect, and sometimes He doesn't, but He knows in all those cases to turn to God because that's where strength comes from. And when we talk about support, He challenges us not to see it as a financial transaction, but as a holy act of worship. So could I ask for, uh, we'll, we'll be singing one more song, but for you to think about Paul has been challenging for us to change our perspective. Where do you feel? Where has the Spirit been talking to you this morning? Where do you need to change your perspective?